Mark uh, chapter 8, verse 31. I'm going to read all the way through to 9-1 and then pray. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we want to thank you for this word. Lord, it's a familiar word to so many of us, and yet it is a challenging word, if ever there was a word. Lord, we, we just pray and ask this morning, Lord, that you just send your spirit your Holy Spirit amongst us. Would you open our hearts and our minds to really see and understand what this word means and how, how we as a church might live in light of it, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, church, I wanted to begin with a question. The question I wanted us to think about this morning is what would it look like to, to really make a mess of your life? 
What would it look like to, to absolutely waste it? Maybe for you it would be to stay in the job you're in until you ret- retire, never get that promotion. Maybe it would be to never get your foot in the housing market, maybe to die a renter or to never pay off the mortgage. Maybe for you it would be to fail as a parent. Maybe to raise kids without a private education or to have kids that go off the rails and get addicted to drugs. Maybe it would be to to miss out on that uni degree, the honors program, the job you really want. Maybe for you, it would be to die before your time, to to be killed in a car accident or diagnosed with cancer or worse, dementia. Maybe for you, it would be to live out your life as a single man or woman, to never get that date, to never get married. Maybe it would be to retire poor, to be dependent on handouts, to be unable to afford that holiday. What would it look like to make a mess of your life, to really waste it? Well, in today's passage, we're going to see that you can succeed in all these areas and still waste your life. You can have a successful career. You can own your own home. You can be an excellent parent with great kids. You can finish that degree you want. You can live a long life. You can have a great marriage. You can enjoy a long retirement and in the process, completely waste your life. I think this morning we're going to see that according to Christ, we fail in life. We waste our lives when we fail to heed His calling. You know, I've just been... uh, just really reminiscing this week on the number of people I've seen over the years, you know, just lose sight of the way of the cross. You know, in school, I was part of a large group of friends who followed Jesus, or who at least said they did, and over the years, so many have have fallen away. In fact, there's only probably, out of a group of about 20, maybe one or two, still walking with the Lord. And for many, it's the journey's hard and, and they forsake it. For others, it's the world is alluring and they go astray from it. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to get distracted. Well, how kind of the Lord this morning to pause and help us. See, church, this morning, Jesus is going to teach his disciples about two distinct callings. Two, in fact, related callings. And those two callings are his calling, and our calling. And they're the two points uh, that I have for this morning's message. You know, these two callings uh, are not immediately obvious. In fact, they're paradoxical. They're the opposite of what you might expect. In fact, they're definitely the opposite of what the disciples expected. This morning's message I've entitled, The Way of the Cross. And really, just, just one point, one heart that I have for us this morning. And, and it's simply this, that we'd see that we're called to follow Jesus on the way of the cross. 
We're called to follow Christ on his way, the way of the cross. Well, let's begin uh, this message by looking at the first point, and that is the main point of this text, and that is his calling, the Savior's calling. You know, just by way of context, back two weeks ago in chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, we see this amazing scene, this healing of a blind man. And, and the healing that we see really parallels the gradual growth in the understanding of the disciples. The blind man cannot see anything, and then Jesus spits and places on his eyes, and he sees, but not clearly, and then at last he sees. And in this 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 picture, we see how the disciples are growing, but not yet completely in their knowledge of who Jesus is. Last week, uh, Dave did an excellent message just looking at who Christ is and that huge climax that we see um, in chapter 8, verse 30, where Jesus proclaims, yes, you are the Christ. You are God's chosen king, not just another prophet, but the promised king. Remember back to the start of the book of Mark, uh, very first words of Mark. Mark says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. You know, Mark's message is about the good news that Jesus, the true King, has come. And it seems like Peter's seen it. God's revealed it to Peter. He's opened his eyes. But the question we're left asking this morning is, but can he see it clearly? Does he see the full picture? In uh, our passage this morning, Jesus begins to completely change his direction before, prior, uh, in this book, all the way from 1-1, all the way through up to last week's passage. The question has been, who is this? Who is this great one? Who is this one who performs all these miracles? And now the question shifts completely to what he's come to do. What is his mission? So let's read again that first verse. Verse 31. And he, that's Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He began to teach them He's now focusing, shifting his teaching to his mission, to his calling. You know, Jesus needs to, in this moment, train these men about what he's come to do. You see, the church, which we're all here enjoying and experiencing, would be built upon these 12 men. And so Jesus, in this moment, is training them about his mission. And note what he says. The Son of Man must suffer many things. He must suffer. This is necessary. Well, what many things? He spells it out. The Son of Man must suffer things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He must be rejected, Jesus teaches, by three different groups. The elders, that's the Jewish aristocracy. That's the the Jewish 
uh, leaders of society, the chief priests. That's the religious elite. Um, the heads of the scribes and the, the heads of the Pharisees, sorry, and Sadducees. And lastly, the scribes. That's the religious legal experts. You know, th- these three groups represent the entire Sanhedrin, the entire Jewish law court. And Jesus is saying that it's necessary that all of these must reject me. united around one cause, and that is rejecting Jesus. More than that, uh, he's to be killed. The word that's used here indicates a violent death, not just natural causes. He must be murdered. And lastly, to rise again, to come back from the grave. And Jesus said this to them plainly. It's the first time that Jesus is speaking openly about his mission. He gathers this group around, having had this climactic moment just briefly before where they saw that he's the Christ and now explains this news. And you can almost feel the shock, the complete disbelief. This was beyond expectation. This was something absolutely stunning for us you know, it's expected. We know Jesus has come to do all these things. But for them, it would just be shock after shock. You know, the Jewish expectation was for a great military leader. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, God promises David that one of his descendants is going to reign on his throne and that his kingdom will know no end. He will reign on the throne of David forever and ever. But after uh, time, what we see is that Israel, the northern kingdom, had been wiped out by the Assyrians about 700 years earlier. That the southern kingdom, Judah, had been about 600 years earlier, wiped out by the Babylonians, who had then returned, only to be dominated by the Persians, who then, after the Persians uh, collapsed, the Greco-Romans, the Greeks, under Alexander the Great, came uh, in the 330s. And then the Egyptians, with the Ptolemies, after that took over. And after them came the Syrians, for another 50 years or so. And after that, they had this brief little period where they ruled by themselves before the Romans came and took over. It's just this little tiny nation that's been knocked about by every superpower in the region time and time again. Nation after nation coming in and just dominating them. Year after year after year after year. And so the expectation is, well, we're expecting a powerful king. A king who's going to put this, uh, this oppression to an end. A king who's going to lay it down on all our enemies. Who's going to establish this kingdom, make us a great nation, and we're never going to get dominated ever again. And that is exactly what is in the disciples' mind as Jesus is teaching them. And then Jesus says, once more in verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the entire Sanhedrin and be killed. What? This is shocking. This cannot be right. 
And so we read Peter, brash as always, took him aside and began to rebuke him. And you can imagine what Peter is saying. He begins to strongly correct him. He says, we can imagine, he says, are you out of your mind? Like, Jesus, have you lost the plot? How will you defeat the Romans if you're dead? We need to win the approval of the Sanhedrin, not be rejected by them. Stop this crazy talk of suffering and dying. Not on my watch, Jesus. And we can imagine the disciples listening in in agreement. What is he talking about? Dying? Jesus, you're wrong. This is not why you've come. You know, verse 30, just a few verses earlier, Peter declares, you're Christ. And things seem to be going so well. They could see who he is. And now it seems that they're just like the blind man before he was fully healed. They see in part, but they don't understand the full picture. They haven't seen clearly yet because they don't understand his mission. Read with me in verse 33. You know, if you rebuke the Saviour, you're going to find yourself in trouble. So look at the Saviour, how the Saviour responds. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus turns and he sees his disciples and he sees them being affected by what Peter is saying. And, and so what follows is one of the strongest statements the Savior will ever make. Get behind me, Satan. You know, Peter's rebuke of Jesus, his insistence that he not die was satanic. Peter has on his mind the things of man. His words reflect the words of Satan himself. Well, what was Satan's message to Jesus? If you cast your minds back to Mark 1, 12, and where Jesus is, is driven into the wilderness um, by the Holy Spirit, and Satan tempts him three times with three different temptations. Remember, first of all, he, he tells him to, to make stones into bread. Secondly, he then takes him up onto the top of the temple, and he says, jump down, God's going to save you. And then thirdly, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and he says, I'll give this to you if you worship me. What was the common theme that Satan was sending to Jesus? Well, there's one theme that unites it all. Satan was saying to Jesus, Jesus, don't go to the cross. Jesus, enjoy your life and your power. Use it for your own comfort and good. Make those stones into bread. Show yourself to all people. About how God cares for you and is all powerful. Reveal your glory by testing him and, and jumping from the peak of the temple in display for all to see. Take up your rule and your kingdom and your authority now and demand that the nations worship you before you go to the cross. Jesus, don't go to the cross. Avoid the cross. And Peter's message in this moment was exactly the same. He was speaking satanic words. But Jesus had in mind the things of God. We read in this passage the divine necessity. 
He must suffer many things. It's the same as saying, according to scriptures, he must suffer many things. And we read it in no other place but in Isaiah's prophecy about the suffering servant. In Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10, Isaiah puts it clearly. He says, but it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. You see, friends, the cross wasn't an accident. It was the sovereign plan of God Almighty. From the very beginning, he had ordained to send his son to make him to be an offering for guilt, our guilt. And so as Jesus hangs on the cross, and as he cries out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There on the cross, there in that moment, he bears our failings. He bears our sin. That we can be right with God. That we can be gathered together as this church. That we can know him and enjoy eternity with him. All through his mission fulfilled. All through what he had come to do in this moment. But to Peter and the disciples, the way of the cross seemed crazy. It seemed ludicrous. It seemed a waste of his life. But in actuality, the reverse was true. For Jesus to fail to walk along the way of the cross would be waste. His mission was the cross. His calling was to the cross. To die that substitutionary death, that death in our place on that cross. That's my first point this morning. The Savior's call to the cross. His calling. But secondly, not just His calling to the cross. The Savior's call to us. Our calling. You see, the Savior, having rebuked Peter, turns to explain not only His calling, but the significance of His call to the cross for His disciples. He wants the disciples to see how his call is related to their call. How it will inform their life to come. He's equipping them for life after his death and resurrection. He's equipping them to live as Christians. Let's read verse 34. It says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples... He said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Notice what Jesus says here, first of all. If anyone would come after me. You know, Jesus 
is giving the conditions for all who would be followers of His. What Jesus is going to present before us in this moment are three commands. And these are not optional extras for us. These are conditions for following Him. Jesus says clearly, if anyone would follow me, he must three things, which we'll look at. First of all, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. Self-denial. That's the first condition. Self-denial is massive for us. Because our culture is one of, not self-denial, but self-gratification. Just by way of clarification, what Jesus does not mean is move to a monastery, avoid good things like chocolate, marriage, and telly. Like, that's not what Jesus is talking about in this moment. But what He is talking about is Follow my example. Follow me. Hear what Paul says of this in 2 Philippians 5 7. Paul says, uh, 2 Philippians 2 5 7, he says this. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being Born in the likeness of men. Not something to be used to his own advantage. Not something to be grasped, but coming as a servant. Emptying himself. Removing yourself as king of your life. Laying down your rights to self-determination. And choosing instead the interests of your master. That message of self-denial is it's the opposite of our culture. You know, I was thinking about it this week. Now, our culture's message is probably best summed up by that famous song by Macklemore and Ryan Lewis. I don't know if you know it. Same love. Let me read you the words. The words go like this. And I can't change, even if I try, even if I wanted to. And I can't change, even if I try, even if I wanted to. My love, my love, my love. She keeps me warm. She keeps me warm. She keeps me warm. She keeps me warm. In this song, which is uh, sung by uh, a female voice in this moment, uh, it's about uh, homosexuality. And the whole premise of the song is, I feel this way, and I can't change the way I feel. Therefore, I need to follow what I feel and do it. That's the premise of the song. I feel this way, therefore I should live according to the way I feel. And that is the mantra of our culture. You know, in Sydney, the same holds true. You must be true to yourself. You must enjoy your life as best you can for as long as you can. You know, generosity in Sydney is good, but only if it doesn't hurt. Career, what's the first question that we always ask people time and time again? What do you want to do? What do you enjoy? Pursue what you enjoy. Pursue what gains you the most. Deny yourself. Yeah, for food, for a diet, or sleep, 
for, for work, to work those extra hours, but only in the end to get what you want. You know, we have rights, definitely. Uh, we have rights to be self-expressed, to be self-determined, to be self-fulfilled, to be self-esteemed, and life is really all about me living in the manner that benefits me the most. But the call of Christ is the very opposite. The call of Christ is deny yourself and gain Christ. The call of Christ says, how can you give more to glorify Him? The call of Christ says, what career will allow me to magnify Him the most, to, to radically serve the church, to serve my family and to serve Christ to others? You know, I, I find this personally so tough, so challenging, and, and, and in my own life, self-gratification is so easily to focus. You know, so much of the things that I worry about, church, is, is about the things I want and missing out on the things I want. You know, in Australia, you know, we don't need to worry about having a roof over our heads. You know, we have housing in New South Wales, and, and, and so we can, even in the case that we, we have insufficient funds, we can get accommodation and a place to live in. But the reason I worry so much about the place that I live in is because I don't just want any place to live in. I want a nice one. More than that, I don't just want to rent a nice one. I want to own it. <coughs> Self-denial says, this is no longer my entitlement. This is no longer my right. I deny self. And I replace it with the heart of Christ. You know, our heart, and I know for all the guys on the team, is you know, we, we would love to save up money and, and I guess possibly you know, if we, we saved up for long enough and hard enough, we could probably afford at some point to buy a house, I don't know, somewhere way out west, in the western suburbs. You know, but for us, we're, we're laying down that right. We're laying down that right to rent indefinitely here in this suburb. Because we believe that Christ is calling us to live here and, and serve the people here and show them Christ. Well, where are the areas that you're tempted to gratify instead of deny yourself? What is it for you? Maybe for you it's further study so that you can progress your career and so you find yourself barely serving in church. I mean, I mean, not in a way that does justice to the way in which God has gifted you. Maybe for you, it's saving for the holidays or saving for the mortgage that you have, which is beyond your means, or saving for renovations, and as a result, you're barely giving. Maybe for you, it's you're giving yourself so much to your kids, to soccer, to music competitions, and so on and so forth, and you have no time for your neighbors or outreach. The point is this. Jesus wants us to remember that self-denial is at the heart of our core. He is our master. That's the first point. Let him deny himself. The second command Jesus gives is to take up his cross. Take up our cross. And this was the opposite of what the disciples were expecting. They were expecting a victorious reign. 
The cross for them was a source of embarrassment. It was the most horrifying of all deaths. It was the most shameful way a person could ever die. And if it was ever possible to see a waste of life, surely it would be someone hanging on a cross. What a, dis- what a disgrace. Well, what does it mean? You know, some people out there, I hear them say from time to time, uh, that, that carrying a cross is about going through hardship. You know, it's, this is the cross I bear. This is the difficult thing the Lord has placed in my life. What Jesus is talking about is something far greater than than that. Jesus, in fact, explains it for us. Uh, In verse 35, we see the first part of his explanation. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Jesus says, Self-preservation. Saving your life. Continuing to live as the king of your life. Continue to be self-determined. To call the shots to be the boss of you. And hiding from the shame of the cross will result in you wasting your life. In fact, you losing your life. But lose your life for Christ and the gospel. That is, carry your cross. That is, brandish the gospel. That is, make Jesus Christ your king. Let him call the shots. And you'll save your life. Again, he goes on to explain it even further for us in verse 38. And this is key to understanding what carrying a cross means. Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him... Will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels? Jesus says there is coming a day of judgment. And those who have been ashamed, those and those who are not ashamed will be divided into. Those who have been ashamed of me will finally come again in judgment. And I will be ashamed of them. But those who have not been ashamed will enjoy eternally with me. To carry the cross, friends, is to unashamedly treasure Jesus. It's to embrace His cross. It's to embrace His message of hope. It's to embrace His atoning sacrifice, to boldly live in light of it, despite the cost you may suffer as a result of it. Now, what Jesus is not saying is... He's not referring to to moments of weakness in evangelism or struggles we may have with Scripture. He's talking about a heart that says, I love you, Jesus, and I'm so thankful for your cross. I'm I'm, I'm trying to live in light of it. To carry the cross is to be unashamedly living for Jesus and embracing the cost, even if it means death. For the disciples, it would mean death. It would mean physical death for all of them except for John. For us, it may mean something different. It may mean loss of reputation. It may mean financial hardship. It may mean losing the respect of your family and friends. And as Christians, we're constantly tempted to feel ashamed of the cross. You know, I had an experience where it was really difficult for me just at work the other day. I work in a hospital. Uh, a colleague of mine is in a lesbian relationship and 
uh, I love her. She's such a great person. Like she's fantastic. She's so easygoing and fun and friendly. And she's out here with her partner. And uh, recently they went away on holidays and uh, they got engaged. And uh, my colleague uh, chased me down and uh, just last week got to me up to me really excitedly and said, Brenda, 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 have you heard? I was like, no, what? I got engaged. And just in the moment, like all these things are flashing through my head. Like, what do I say? Like, uh, I care about her. And I, in one sense, you know, it's, it's great that she's excited. But as a Christian, I believe this relationship is deeply harmful to her. How can I rejoice? How can I, how can I celebrate? And I kind of fumbled out something like, oh, that's great. Yeah, something like that. And I kind of feel a little bit like I copped out on it. But this is the thing. Christ's call for us comes at risk, comes at a cost. And we're constantly tempted to feel that shame of the cross and all that Christ stands for. You know, Christ called for us to be generous versus the expectation of family and friends for the type of home that we're going to live in, for the type of education we should have for our kids, for the type of holidays we should enjoy, or the lifestyle we should have. Christ called to serve the church versus the expectation of colleagues to work long hours, of friends to have kids in sport and music and dance and drama. You know, Christ called to share his message with your friends versus your desire to be liked and to seem tolerant or wise. It comes at a cost. But let's remember, church, to carry a cross is to unashamedly treasure Christ despite what it may cost us. Well, thirdly, not just deny self, not just take up the cross, but finally, to follow me. You know, this is what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? To follow in the path of Jesus. You know, to have saving faith means to entrust yourself to Jesus as your Christ, as your King. It's not just intellectual assent. It's not just saying, I believe that's true, that Jesus died on the cross. But it's actually handing over authority of your life to Him. It's saying, Jesus, take the reins of my life. But being perfect, not being perfect, but but a life of following and of repentance. And if you're anything like me, it's not easy. It's so hard. And have you ever wondered why it's so hard? Like, why is it so tough to follow Jesus? Well, I think in part we see the answer in verse 38. Where Jesus says that we live in the midst of an adulterous and sinful generation. We're going to experience opposition. There's people that are going to be opposed to us. And that's part of the reason. Because I've thought about it more this week. I just think a big part of it is that we so often live with our eyes in, in this world instead of in the world to come. But look how the Saviour seeks to encourage us. Verse 36. He says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? You know, Jesus uses two accounting metaphors to talk about the value of eternal life. What benefit is it to you, Jesus says, if you gain all the riches, if you gain all the power, if you gain all the strength in the world and you forfeit, you give up your soul. You suffer the loss of your very own life. You know, the soul is its the non-physical you. It's the bit of you that can't be seen or touched. It's the eternal you. 
And Jesus is saying, what dollars will you use with God to buy back your life from Him? What good will it be if Christ is ashamed of you on that last day? What good will your money be then? You know, uh, just a, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, we had a, a patient in the hospital in St. Vincent's who was uh, uh, on the Forbes rich list of Australia. He's a, a billionaire. He's since uh, passed away. And a uh, very, very famous man. And uh, I remember looking after him. And this guy has, he owns islands. He owns uh, huge racing boats. He owns everything you could want or imagine. And yet, he was in, uh, terminally ill end stage with uh, dementia and his family is just kind of circling around him and uh, I just remember looking at him just feeling sad this man is devoted his whole life to gaining more wealth and what good is it to him in this moment what good will our possessions be when we're dead what money will we use to pay our debt to God he owns it all the only one who can be given in exchange for us is Christ. You know, I think we find it so hard to follow because our eyes are so focused on this life. We forget the call of the cross. We begin to think that our purpose lies in the horizontal. We begin to, we begin to think and live as though unless we gain everything we want in life, we'll waste it. When really it's the opposite that's true. We'll waste our lives if we just live for the things we want. And I think when we think this way, we're just like the disciples who saw Jesus but couldn't see his mission and couldn't see how they should live in light of it. And the truth is, though, there's a temporary cost. Christ offers us this most incredible, this joy-filled, unspeakable gift in return for following him. It's the most outrageously crazy deal you could ever imagine. You know, lose your life in this world for me. Gain eternity with me in the age to come. You know, I've been uh, thinking about it this week, and I don't know if you've seen this before, but uh, this illustration that just stuck with me, was shown to me uh, many years ago, and, and just imagine that uh, this roll of string represents eternity. And if I could just roll it kind of out and make it all the way down the hall, it could go on and on and on and on. I could, I could wrap around this room a million times, and, and it still wouldn't be finished. This is eternity and the life to come. And imagine this little ribbon that I've placed on here is the span of your life. This is you in light of eternity. And we focus and we worry and we struggle thinking about this. This little dot in light of eternity. Friends, there is eternity to come. There is incredible treasure stored up for you in heaven with Christ. Let's cast our lives, our worries in right perspective. To think about it in light of eternity. Millions of years with Christ. You know, Francis Chan puts it so well. He says, people accuse me of going overboard in preparing for my first 10 million years in eternity. In my opinion, people go overboard in worrying about their last 10 years on earth. Isn't that true? In closing, friends, in our passage, Jesus has started to plainly teach about his mission and his call. 
It's an unexpected call. It's a call which sent his disciples to be a waste of his life, a call to the cross for us. But Jesus also teaches his disciples that his call is related to our call. That his mission is a model for the way in which his disciples must follow him. That to fail to answer this call is to waste your life. Well, how do we apply it? In closing, I think for some of us, you're sitting here and maybe you've realized that you've been saying you believe in Christ. You've been saying you believe he's the king, but you've not been following You've saying that you trust in him as the king, but just not the king of you. The message of scripture is you need to repent of that. You need to turn your life around. You need to change your mind and put your trust in him. You need to ask for forgiveness and start trusting him as your king. But for most of us, I think, if you're anything like me, you feel that you've just not been following well. You know, you're a Christian. You're trying. You're saying... You're saying, yes, Jesus, you're my king. I want to follow you. But you're just getting sidetracked. But let's be stirred to remember what he calls us to. Church, he calls us to deny ourselves. He calls us to stop following our own desires. He calls us to take up our cross, to unashamedly treasure Christ. He calls us to follow him. We're called to follow Jesus on the way of the cross. We pray in closing. This morning, we want to thank you for your powerful words to us, Lord. Powerful words. Call to follow you on the path of the cross. To count the cost. To give up this life. To give up living for ourselves and our own wants and desires and follow you. Lord, we find it hard. Lord, I find it just pray for us as a church. Would you strengthen us with the knowledge that you're with us? That you will help us to truly follow you. That you will guide our steps. That you will lead us home. Lord, help us to keep our eyes firmly fixed on you and to follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.